Section three of Charles the Second by Osmond Airy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter one. Prince of Wales. Part three. Jersey was exuberantly loyal and proud that in the time of distress she should have been chosen as a refuge. Sunday, April twenty sixth, was a great day in the annals of the island the prince had announced his intention of coming on that day to st helier's to attend divine service and the whole population was there to greet him the church was carpeted and strewn with flowers its pillars were decorated with boughs of trees and garlands the beach was crowded and every window and housetop was filled with spectators a troop of one hundred cavaliers of the island and a guard of honour of three hundred musketeers with drums beating and colours flying formed an escort throughout his stay in jersey under the careful eye of hyde charles exhibited a devout bearing which won the highest approval of the inhabitants he was indeed soon on the best of terms with them newcastle himself could have found no fault he was grandement benin displaying that easy courtesy of address that graceful condescension in trifles upon which his old tutor had laid such emphasis by securing to the ladies of puritan sympathies the restoration of their confiscated finery by admitting the loyal islanders to see him when he dined in state with silver plate a doctor in theology to say grace lords and gentlemen-in-waiting uncovered before him pages cup-bearers and tasters by the infinite grace with which he accepted their contribution of fifteen hundred pistoles having not twenty pounds in the world by the punctiliousness with which he returned their salutes in a hundred ways this boy of sixteen secured their enthusiastic affection while his attention to his duties in the council and his activity in looking to the strengthening of the defences of the island and to the relief of pendennis satisfied even hyde the time remaining from ceremonial or business was chiefly passed in indulging that passion for the sea which he had apparently acquired during his short stay in Scilly, although fear of capture by the parliament vessels had forbidden going far from shore. On the voyage to Jersey he had insisted upon steering the frigate himself, remaining at the helm for hours at a time. On June 8th a beautifully appointed yacht arrived, which was built for him at St. Malo. She had twelve pairs of oars and two masts. Upon this and the safe waters of the bay he passed every vacant moment, and the love of salt water and the interest which he then acquired in the details of boat-building remained to the end of his life. Many years after the restoration Arlington noted that twenty leagues by sea were more pleasing to him than two by land, and more than once he commissioned the building of a yacht with his own improvements. If Hyde and those who thought with him had had their way, Charles would have remained at Jersey until his father's fate was definitely settled. But his mother was eager to secure his presence in France. As early as April 5th, she had written to Hyde, under the impression that Charles was still at Scilly, urging the change to Jersey, but intimating that he would find every assistance in France, should he chose to land there first. Culpepper, returning from his mission to Henrietta, arrived at Jersey immediately after the prince, 
and Hyde, Capel, and Hopton gathered at once from him that the letter was a blind, and that had Charles landed in France, he would never have been allowed to come to Jersey at all. On May 17th, Henrietta communicated a copy of a letter written by the king on April 15th, in which he insisted upon his son joining her in France, and bade her send to him their united commands to do so at once. Hyde and his friends fought desperately against this design. They had to contend with the influence of Culpepper, who had been won over by the queen during his stay in Paris, and who privately so wrought upon his highness, that he became as averse to remaining in Jersey as he had previously been disinclined to leaving it. All they could do was to persuade Charles to postpone his departure until Capel and Culpepper had carried their remonstrances to the Queen, with their opinion that in any case delay was necessary until circumstances had more fully declared themselves. On May 20th Hyde recapitulated his arguments in a long dispatch to the Queen's favourite, Lord German, through whom she transacted all business the anxiety which would at once occur as to the prince's religion, the sacrifice of his present security and honourable independence, the jealousy which would be aroused in every country at present favourable to his cause, these and other cogent reasons were pressed home. But Hyde's main contention was that the king could be restored only by the affections of his own people, that these affections would be lost if it were known that Charles had gone to France, and that the help of a French army would be disastrous. A little later he repeated this last argument. I do more fear a French army than the Presbyterians and independence. It must be the resurrection of the English courage and loyalty must recover England for the king. A foreign aid except of arms and money will never reconcile these hearts to the king and his posterity, without which he has no hope of reigning. Hyde's pleading was in vain. The king had again written to his wife from Newcastle that he considered Charles was not safe in Jersey. In God's name let him stay with thee till it is seen what ply my business will take. But this was coupled with the command that thou wouldst not endeavour to alter him in religion, nor so much as trouble him in that point. Next, that thou mayest not thyself nor suffer him to be engaged in any treaty of marriage without first having my approbation. The queen wrote accordingly, commanding Charles to give immediate obedience to his father's wish, promising on the part of the French court an honourable reception, with full liberty to continue or depart at pleasure, promising also that she would not oppose his going anywhere in the king's dominions, that all business of state should be conducted through him and the council as in Jersey, and that she would strictly adhere to the king's limitations of her influence. High politics came to her aid. Mazarin desired to see Charles nominally under French protection, really, as Hyde saw, in French power. He might prove to be a useful card in the political game with England. An open offer might have caused a breach with the Parliament. There could, however, be no ground of complaint against the prince's coming to visit his mother, and to make sure of his acquiescence, Mazarin was careful that a letter should reach the hands of the council, in which it was stated that he had certain intelligence of a plot within Charles's household 
to deliver him to the Parliament. Henrietta's entreaties and commands were strongly reinforced by the impatience of the boy himself to exchange the narrow round of pleasure and interest which the island afforded and the control of Hyde for the freedom and the delights which Paris had to offer to a young prince. On June 20th, when Capel and Colepepper returned, accompanied by German, Digby, and others of the Queen's friends, the question was finally settled at a meeting of the Prince's Council in which the newcomers took part. Hyde, supported by Capel and Hopton, pleaded for a postponement of the debate on so crucial a matter. German and Culpepper replied that the main question was already decided, since it was whether the Prince was to obey or to disobey his father and mother, the only debate could be upon details. Charles gave his decision in their favour and ordered everything to be in readiness for the next Tuesday morning. Accidents and contrary winds prevented the departure until Thursday afternoon, and the boy's impatience during the enforced delay is vividly pictured for us by an eyewitness. From Tuesday morning that he first intended to go, he stayed with great impatience and would never suffer any of his attendants or train to go out of the castle, lest they might be absent in that article of time when the wind should serve, which he resolved to lay hold of, so that nobody went to bed from that time till they came into France, and ate only such meat as my Lady Cartwright could suddenly provide. The Lords Capel and Hopton and the Chancellor of the Exchequer went once a day to kiss his hands, and stayed very little time, there growing every day a visible strangeness between them and the rest, insomuch that they had little speech together, and the last day none. The other lords sitting upon the rock of the waterside, whilst they walked upon the bowling green with the prince, who quickly left them, and they returned. To the last moment, German and Digby were anxious, lest Hyde should regain his influence, and when on Thursday morning, June twenty-fourth, Charles went on board the frigate, they walked by his side, each taking an arm, presenting thus an actual physical barrier against interference. The contrary wind was so violent that he was forced to land again. His impatience was rendered ungovernable by this delay, and about five of the clock, the wind continuing so contrary, he resolved to try his fortune and suddenly put all his company aboard and himself went into his chalet, resolving to row over. But within half an hour after he was at sea, the wind came fair and blew a pretty gale, so that he went into the bigger vessel, and by eleven of the clock at night reached the French shore at Cotinville, and lay at anchor till daybreak, and then he landed with all his retinue. Hyde, Capel, and Hopton declined to accompany an expedition of which they utterly disapproved, and Fanshawe remained with them on the island. Berkshire, even more mortified, went to Holland. The personal differences which appeared in this dispute have to be reckoned with throughout the next years. A continual conflict took place between the Queen's or the French faction, in which German and Digby, and in a less degree Culpepper, were the most prominent, and the party which followed Hyde, the former councillors of the King, Capel, Hopton, Ormond, and Nicholas. Between the calmness of judgment, the consistent devotion, and the firmness of political principle of the latter, and the comparative absence of all such virtues in the former party, there was a marked contrast. 
There remains one episode to be recorded before we follow Charles and his fortunes in France. We could scarcely expect, when we remember the early maturity of his physical nature, that amid the scenes and influences of the past four years his morals should have remained unscathed. But it is somewhat startling to find that before he left Jersey, when he was barely sixteen, the boy had become a father. The secret was well kept, so well indeed that more than twenty years afterwards he was able to inform the general of the Jesuits at Rome that it was known to but two other persons, the Queen of Sweden and Henrietta Maria and that of them neither was aware of the other's knowledge. Of the mother we know absolutely nothing more than Charles disclosed in the same letter. The boy was born, he says, of a young lady who was amongst the most distinguished in our kingdom, more from the frailty of our first youth than from any ill intentions or great depravity. With her wrecked life, her motherhood, which was her shame, she passes like a nameless shadow across the page of the child we hear more in sixteen sixty five he was in london and on september twenty seventh of that year charles gave a written acknowledgment that james stuart was his natural son having lived in france and elsewhere under an assumed name up to that date charles further ordered that he should be known as james de la cloche du bourg de jarzy and prohibited him from disclosing his birth until after his own death when he might present this declaration to Parliament. The boy then went to Holland to pursue his studies. A year and a half later, February 1667, Charles sent him another paper, which, like the first, still exists in the archives of the Jesuits, assigning to him, if it pleased his successor in Parliament, five hundred pounds a year, which he was to enjoy so long only as he lived in London and remained a member of the English Church. On April twenty ninth, sixteen sixty seven, the young man was reconciled to Rome, and that circumstance led to another meeting with his father, which will appear later in the narrative. Charles landed in France with high hopes, born of the assurances he had received, but he was speedily disillusioned. To play the part of the unwilling host to a self invited guest was Mazarin's obviously prudent course. Instead of the reception to which he had looked forward, Charles had to make his way unassisted to his mother at Saint-Germain, where Rupert found him in the middle of July. The French, wrote one of his followers, allow the prince nothing of their great promises, and I think the court wished themselves at Jarsey again. With the same political aim, a pretext was found in a dispute as to his precedence over Louis the Fourteenth to delay the formal reception demanded by his relationship until august fourteenth when he was acknowledged at fontainebleau with all the elaborate ceremonial which now became the established practice of the french court he rode on the same side of the coach as the king and on his right hand and no point of honour was forgotten and nothing omitted that could testify the close ties of consanguinity for his own bearing we hear that truly the prince behaved himself in the journey so handsomely that he has gotten the love of all that have seen him both men and women but while every care was taken to give him all that convention demanded the purely formal nature of the reception was emphasized by his being allowed to extend his stay over no more than the customary three days of court visits 
in the midst of his own troubles charles i did not lose sight of his son he sent dr stewart to be dean of his chapel and to advise him in all matters of conscience he bade him hold fast to the right government of the church and never to give up the power of the sword when he should come to be king and lastly he wrote i will end this letter with a negative direction never to give way to the punishment of any for their faithful service to the crown upon whatsoever pretense or for whatsoever cause there is something exquisitely pathetic in this expression of remorse from the man who sacrificed strafford we shall find his son who had carried his appeal to the coldly obdurate houses recalling it more than once in after years even when he followed only too faithfully the precedent rather than the precept a certain show of desultory education was kept up the prince gives good dr earls leave to read with him an hour a day and mr hobbs to teach him the mathematics another what progress he makes i know not but without doubt he hath a sweetness of nature not easy to be corrupted two hours a day probably did not suffice for other experiences under able tuition he soon became initiated into the relaxations of a court where intrigue duelling and license reigned supreme buckingham his old playfellow found him enough inclined to receive ill impressions and having himself got into all the impieties and vices of the age set himself to corrupt the king in which he was too successful being seconded in that wicked design by lord percy End of section three